Law and Order. It's a marquee TV series, a racial dog whistle, and an American value. It's a national obsession cultivated from youth onward. As a father, I've been thinking about this a lot. Kids love playing cops and robbers. Make-believe becomes a reward system for more mature children where misbehavior is met by discipline. And by adulthood, it becomes a go-to campaign promise. Law and order talk reminds us that our safety is on the line, whether there really is an other threatening our well-being or not. I know enough to say that law and order isn't really about a dangerous other. It's about our own social insecurities. To find out more, I talked to Dr. Rita Shaw. She teaches at Elizabethtown College and is the winner of the 2016 Praxis Award from the American Society for Criminology's Division on Critical Criminology. Shaw says there's a lot to learn by rethinking what we mean by crime. It, I think it tells us that when we think about people who commit crime, we think about them, a correction, who get caught for committing crime. We think about them very differently from people who don't get caught. And I'm being very specific about caught versus not caught because reality, we all commit crime. And so really when we're talking about responding to crime, we're talking about responding to the ones who get caught. And that's coming up right now. From SowingTheSeed.org, this is Broadcast Seeding, a podcast with future food for thought on religion, culture, and teaching. I'm Richard Newton. We're glad you've joined us. With us today is Rita Shaw. She's Assistant Professor of Sociology and Anthropology at Elizabethtown College. She's also the resident critical criminologist at the campus, and we'd love to hear from her about what in the world is crime? So first of all, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. And yeah, what does it mean to study crime? What does crime look like to you? So crime to me is probably going to look different than what most people consider crime, right? So when people think about crime, they tend to think whatever is out there that shouldn't be happening in the world, um, or at least shouldn't be the kind of actions either because it's morally opposed to what they believe in, or they just think, well, that's just, why would you do that? From an official sort of viewpoint, though, when I talk about crime in class, I'm very specific about the definition I use. So I tell students the definition that we always use is, it's any act that is legislatively prohibited. So it's a behavior, it's something that people do, that someone at some point officially said, this is against the law. Um, And that's different, I think, in a lot of ways from what some people think are things that should be crime but aren't necessarily criminal. Because you... We throw this out all the time, right? You hear people say, well, that can't possibly be the case. That should be criminal. That should be against the law. Why isn't that against the law? And the bottom line is there aren't enough people or enough political motivation to actually make that the case. Yeah, crime is a heavy word. I mean, when you say something is criminal or it's against the law, that's taking a pretty strong stance about good versus bad or Correct. right versus wrong. But we know those that line is pretty relative, I mean, across societies, across groups, across history. Mm -hmm. So what's at stake for you in defining crime, maybe with your students or as an academician? So I think the stakes are, what are the, when we talk about crime, what's officially considered crime, right? So for instance, I like to use the example marijuana in class. Historically, didn't really have that much of an issue, even though it was criminalized fairly early on until about the 70s. And then the power behind criminalization, uh, uh, sorry, marijuana really sort of picked up. Right? But if we look the last few years, 
public policy has swayed the total opposite direction again. I mean, for the most part, public opinion has said, the majority at least say, whatever. We have states who are blatantly disregarding federal regulations and federal law, local municipalities, everything, right? Even the federal government has come in and said, if the state passes a law that contradicts when it comes to pot, we're not gonna do anything about it, right? It's still technically against federal law and it's still against 48 states' laws. So technically, you can be arrested, you can be charged, you can be convicted, you can spend years, if not your entire life, in prison for it. Because it's legislatively Because it's prohibited. legislatively prohibited. Socially, no one cares. And so I think as an academic, and then especially for my students, what I try to get across is crime is not objective. They have, there are objective parts to it, right? We can measure how much there is. We can measure, you know, what kinds of specific behaviors fall under specific definitions. But it's not objective in the sense that there isn't a true definition of what constitutes crime. That comes from us. That comes from people, from society, from media coverage, from politicians from history. It comes from how we paint crime, as you said, as good versus evil. It comes from how I paint who commits a crime. So who commits one crime? That's just dumb childhood behavior. You look at a different person, maybe different race, different sex, different sexual orientation, different gender, that's criminal. And so when we look at crime, technically, yes, it's any action that's legislatively prohibited, but it becomes much more about what do we as a society think are the behaviors and possibly even the people who do certain behaviors that we don't think fit within our larger sphere. And I'm guessing then there's there's got to be some teeth behind it too. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's punishment or some sort of corrective attitude, some sort of police action, if you will, right? When a community decides this behavior is not acceptable for our norms, for our ideas, for our boundaries. Right. Yeah. I mean, there there's, you know, so this is why we call it the criminal justice system. Right, because it's not just the law. There are, there's the policy and the legislative side, there's the policy directives that then go down to police officers, corrections officials, lawyers, judges, um, depending on what the crime might be, teachers, parents, doctors, dentists, anyone that might even come remotely close to witnessing or somehow encountering the crime. So you end up with a system that is very much dependent on having these laws perpetuate in some form or another. And this links very much to what we in the field call the present industrial complex, right? So this concept of the ways in which the systems and structures of society perpetuate crime and perpetuate the prison system, even when we don't necessarily need it. I argue it comes down to economics, really, that the sole driver of all of it is is business. It's, it's profit. Because you end up basically, if, if you think about the criminal justice system, right? If we actually dealt with the root causes of crime, instead of locking everybody up and just arresting them. We'd have less cops, we'd have less lawyers, less judges, way less prisons, if not maybe a handful, right? I mean, we could theoretically get rid of all prisons depending on how we change the earlier end of crime. That all is profit-driven, right? There's no way that the police unions are gonna wanna give up that many officers and that much income and funding. Private businesses that are run the prison or involved with the prison through telephones, food, healthcare, the security equipment, the handcuffs, right? I mean, all these other companies that have nothing to do with the system make money off the system. Yeah. I mean, and or in, in political speak, right? It's jobs. Right, right? exactly. And when, you know, you're in a area where industry has left, which you can see in the Rust Belt, you can see mm -hmm. in the South, you can see in all these places where one industry has picked up and 
left town. Yep. Um, and you need new industry. A prison is likely to come. And, and, it, and it's a huge boom for that community. Almost everyone in communities where it's that bad, almost everyone in the community ends up working in the prison or they know someone who's working in the prison or their largest source of income comes because of somebody working in the prison or adjacent in some way with the prison. It's also a big political boom because politicians can say, look, we're reducing crime. We're locking people up, putting them in behind bars or giving them programs behind bars as opposed to saying, well, let's put programs in the community beforehand that would actually prevent the crime from happening. It's a huge political investment to say, we're doing this. And the bigger kicker is because our politics rotate so quickly, they have to be able to say, I'm doing stuff immediately. Yeah, and it seems it's a like massive in, win. in recent years, perhaps with the sort of information age, there's been a more nuanced conversation mm -hmm. about the process behind crime and establishing what is a crime, the punishment, reconciliation, all these different pieces, these components. And uh, one of the phrases that gets bandied around a lot is the school to prison pipeline. Mm -hmm. So I, I suppose in that 18 year span where someone says, you know, let me introduce this policy of early childhood education. It's going to change things, but you're not going to see the fruit of it for 18 years. That's not going to play well. Right. Meanwhile, you have stuff on the other end that says we're going to be tough on crime. We're going to lock people up. Right. All of these pieces are part of this prison industrial complex you're talking yep. about. And you said that there seems to be a reason why we don't get at the root causes of crime and instead feed into this complex. But what are those root causes? So depending on who you talk to, you're going to get different answers. I am one of the criminologists who very much buys into the theories and the data that suggests that it's about the social realities in which people live. Right? There are those who would argue that it's biological. I think for some individuals there might be a small component, psychological possibly as well. But some of the bigger, I think, data points very clearly to poverty. If you are in a situation where your options are spend however much the bus costs to travel half an hour or an hour to a job that pays minimum wage and then take the bus back or go to the corner and make 250 bucks an hour or in a day, yeah, it's not the best choice, but it's a better choice than spending most of your income on bus fare. So poverty becomes a big one, I think, and obviously not everyone takes the corner out, but, but when we look at some of the data that talks about where jobs are, there is data that suggests that crime, high crime neighborhoods, which often have to be high poverty neighborhoods, don't have jobs in the local area. So you can't walk, you can't bike, and they also be tend to be areas that don't have public transportation. So getting to a decent job requires more money than a lot of people maybe have. Education tends to be a really big one. One of the things that the literature has been quite clear about is that education, whether it's before or after prison, is a really good buffer against criminal activity. So we know that people who get an early childhood education get a really good elementary, middle school, high school education are able to get better jobs, which helps them earn the money to stay out of criminal activity. They're able to go to college in a lot of cases, again, better paying jobs. And even for those who come out of college or out of prison, those who are able to get a high school degree or a college degree are less likely to recidivate afterwards. Now, whether it's the critical thinking skills, whether it's the ability to get a better job, I'm honestly not sure, but there's something about education that functions as that buffer. In some cases, it's even things as simple as, you know, how do you, how do you get a student to, to, to the school itself? We have truancy laws in place that basically say if you're late to school, you will be fined or and your parent may even have to do some time in jail as punishment. Well, for those who are relying on public transportation, if that bus is late, they're truant through no fault of their own, they're truant. Right. Or if the car breaks down and their parents can't drive them. There are so many different layers to why people commit crime and we tend to focus on, well, they chose to. Yes, 
they technically at the at the end of the day yes they absolutely made that choice but what were the factors that played into their life that led to that decision right in the so, first that, place? so that the options weighed in the way that made what's you know in hindsight is considered a crime or maybe with foresight is considered a crime but it's made it to be a worthwhile decision right, right. no one chooses right. to do something because it's the wrong thing and the bad thing to do generally speaking we use that to outline certain conditions right, right. Of, right. of impaired judgment right. immaturity cognitive dysfunction etc right. right mental illness right. i mean these are the sort of rhetorics that are going to apply to people who choose to do something wrong right. for wrong sake people usually do some sort of moral mental calculus right. to act in their favor and what i guess the issue right. becomes what makes what social factors and environmental factors yeah. lead people to choose the things they choose, right. the options they choose. And, and I would actually say one thing that you you said maturity plays a big role in it too, right? So if we look at, for instance, the there are several of these out there, but if you ever just Google the age crime curve, the pattern is pretty clear. Starts to peak pretty heavily in the early teen years, peaks around late teens, early twenties, drops a little bit till about the mid twenties, and then drops considerably. Which kind of makes sense if you think about it, right? We're pretty dumb in our teens and early 20s. We're still pushing the boundaries. We're still trying to figure out who we are. So criminal behavior makes sense in the sense that it's it's pushing the boundary of what society says we're allowed to do and trying to figure out what are the boundaries we're comfortable with. Mid-20s is when people start to figure out their life. They've either graduated college or if they didn't go to college, they figured out what careers they want. So they start getting invested. Ideally, this is when you're starting to get married, have kids, buy a house if that's what you're into mm -hmm. or can afford. Um, and so there, there's a sense of the older we get, the more subtle we get in life, but also the more mature we get in life. And I think one of the data pieces that, that I saw recently, and hopefully I'm remembering it correctly, that I found really fascinating is that our brains don't fully understand the consequences of our actions until about our 30s. It would make sense that crime disappears, or not disappears, but seriously drops by your 30s and, and later. Right, the right? tools and resources and faculties you have to make those decisions right. are different at these various stages of right. life, and we know that we're still acquiring those tools, right. you know, at, in our early 30s, right? right? Uh, but if we look at who's in our juvenile and adult facilities, it's teenagers, it's young adults, right? The people that, quite frankly, based on developmental stages, we fully expect to be making these decisions, but we don't treat them as if they're still developmental. We treat them as if you've, you're turned 18, you automatically know what you're doing. Or, yeah, you might be 15, but you know murder's wrong. Technically, yes, but that doesn't mean that you have the ability to weigh why it's wrong, or in that very particular yeah. moment, is it actually wrong? Yeah, I mean, the, the age label is so arbitrary. Mm -hmm. In certain spaces, at 18, you're an adult and you can enjoy the privileges that come with that. Other things is driving, 16, mm -hmm. right? Voting, you know, 18, 21. Right, you know, there, right. There's these different levels of being president, right? Right. So uh, randomly 35. Yeah, I'm sorry, you 16, 18-year-old, <laughs> you're not equipped, mentally equipped to be right. president of the United States right now. Um, I mean, that's a very weird mm -hmm. piece of legislation to put right. uh, on these roles of power that, from a certain point of view, one might say, well, this is all a very weird game to keep people in certain places. And, you know, it's like the game of life plus sorry. Plus, right. Um, <laughs> right. Plus Monopoly. Yeah. Right. They're on Monopoly. Yeah. I mean, it's really just wreaking havoc on Park Brothers. Right. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist. And so I want to play devil's advocate and say, <laughs> if it really comes down to these different choices that we make and these different opportunities, and you use the framework of economics to mm -hmm. speak about it, then... This conversation about crime is really about social competition. You right? can make I mean, that if, argument. If jobs, yeah. 
if it's about jobs, right, if people commit crimes because they don't have the economic resources and opportunity costs and whatnot to choose according to societal good, then they're going to go toward crime. Right. As opposed to people who have jobs who would not make that decision right. and would likely stick with, right. you know, good behavior. Unless <laughs> we're talking about white-collar crime. Of course, right. Right, which, which is the sort of pie-in-the-sized crime that for whatever reason never gets talked about, which to me fascinates me because the whole purpose of white-collar crime is that it's done in the service of your employer. So we tend to think of embezzlement as white-collar crime. It technically isn't because it's not in the service of your employer. It's for your own benefit. So here we have people who are in, who are considered, you know, the epitome of what we want people to be in this in this uh, country. Hard-working, moved up the ladder, since we define success by money, making oodles and oodles of money, right? Big, beautiful home, maybe a yacht or two, who are maybe doing fraudulent behavior for their, on behalf of their company, and that's why they're getting the bonus, or, you know, saying, you know, the classic Ford Pinto example, right? We There there was a letter, uh, memo that was eventually found that showed the cost-benefit analysis of fixing the gas tank versus paying out for the death and they decided it would be cheaper to just pay out for the death. It's white-collar crime. It is fraudulent. It is technically murder, because you've basically said, yeah, we know people are going to die, but sure. So it's technically premeditated. But Ford made money. More money than what they lost, even after that information came out and they had to pay whatever fine they had to pay. 2008 crash. Another great example, right? We know that the mortgage applications were fudged to look like people had more income than they did. We know they were targeting minorities specifically for that. Banks still made bank. The CEOs were making, I don't remember what their bonuses were, but absurd bonuses in the middle of the crash. I mean, it caused massive destruction to our economy, but it still cost the companies less in fines than it would have if they hadn't done the thing. Yeah, that definition of white collar crime is really, it's interesting because if you think about crime in light of something like the Protestant work ethic, mm-hmm. right? This idea that you have to prove your worth in your society, that you you know you are chosen, you know you belong based upon what you can produce. Right. And that means hard work, that means going without to bring gain, and taking risks, right. and uh, risks for good, you know, right. the good of your God. Well, that sort of faithfulness is not just an objective faithfulness that you can see as, you know, categorically imperative across any situation, but rather... It's, are you pleasing the person who is above you, your employer? And if you're contributing to the cause, right. then you'll probably get away with it and probably get maybe a good kickback in right. return. And and if you're God, I mean, if you're a massive company, your God is also capitalism. It's money. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, yeah, you might be doing some sketchy things on the side, but you're still pleasing your God. You're pleasing your employer. And the people to whom you, people owe things, right? you owe because, things, right? Because, I mean, money right. is just that medium. It's it's. Right the commitment you have to the person who can take yeah, that money the, and give you the investors, the yeah. stockholders, yeah. right? The people who said, yeah, this is a good idea. I'm going to give you money to, to see that. I mean, they all have to get paid out eventually as well. And the more money you make, the more money they make. So when we take Ghost Town USA, where all industry is left, um, and all there is is just um, people trying to figure out how to make sense mm-hmm. of their world. When a jail comes into town, it means jobs. Mm-hmm. Is that better or worse? I mean, how do you how do you <laughs> compare that to the trouble people without those jobs are going to get into? Right? I mean, and I think that's that's where the study of crime gets really really complicated, right? Because again, I admit 
I would not have a job without it. My job is dependent on there being crime in society and there being a system that responds to that. And so then the question is, well, what would I do? I have no idea. I honestly have no idea what I would do. Yeah, you're tied into those right? economic I'm, I'm tied I mean, in those it's... economic sh- My salary is dependent on those, on these systems perpetuating to some extent. Yeah. And so I think this is why addressing crime and creating the change that a lot of us argue, especially those of us on the, on the critical criminology side of things argue, is necessary to truly address crime gets really complicated. Because is it better for the people who are getting jobs? I would venture to guess that there would be very little doubt that it would, that that not having their jobs would be better. I think it's really hard to make that argument, because then what are they going to do, right? They're stuck, literally just stuck. On the other hand, can we create a society so that they wouldn't be in that position in the first place? It's, it's a huge unknown. On the idealistic side, of course, absolutely we can do this. In reality, how do we make that happen? And what do we do to the, to the poor people who are stuck in whatever circumstance they're stuck in until we make that happen? Do we leave them hanging? Do we go ahead and build the prison and say, here, here's some, here some jobs for you until we figure it out and then we can kill it and give you something else? What do we do? And I'll say just, you know, to, you know, sort of as a religious studies scholar, my view is with the societal narratives that come about from all of this is that even if you were to remove the prison industrial complex as a way of meeting this socioeconomic need and dealing with social deviance, you're still going to have societies create these boundaries, right. and that's the lines that define crime and label right. people as right. deviating from what is legislated. Right. And that's because they're participating in this prohibited activity, they've got to go somewhere or something's got to be done, right? right? I mean, jail becomes a, a, a nice way of dealing with right. people. We used to have other ways of yes, absolutely. people, right? Absolutely. Um, all these people wearing letter, lowercase t's around their mm-hmm. neck, right? They're, you know, basically walking around with jail 1.0. We've upgraded since right. then, hopefully. Right. Um, <laughs> so uh, what do you think this critical criminology that you're a part of is contributing to? Because that, that's a phrase I'm starting to hear more in the academy. And frankly, criminal justice departments are popping. I mean, there's yeah, students are. are coming. Uh, I know are. that was the hip thing to be a part of when I was in college. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't know it. Um, I studied religious studies instead. But I hung out with those kids. And they were they were the cool kids yeah. in the academy. What What is critical criminology so, that's happening there? The, I would say the big difference between critical criminology and mainstream criminology is critical criminology questions what mainstream criminology takes for granted. So, for instance, we ask, is crime really the official definitions that they tell us? Or can we expand it to include, and we would argue yes, anything that leads to violence. Right. So we would argue that racism, sexism, um, classism, all of those things should also be considered criminal because of the effect that they have. Even if they don't cause direct violence, the history of those isms absolutely have. The long-term impact does. And it, and it creates societies in which individuals are purposely held down for various different reasons, right? And often those are the individuals who end up becoming involved in official crime. So we also then would, criti- would criticize and question official data, for instance, right? Because if we look at who's getting arrested, who's in prison, those numbers alone tell one thing. If we look at the stories behind those numbers, it tells you a very different story about who's committing crime and who should be punished for those crimes and why we punish certain people for those crimes. So I would say that the point of critical chronology is to basically be critical of the field of criminology itself and sort of push the field into saying, look, yeah, we all we all are on the same page, right? We want to address crime. We want to figure out how to make the society a better place. But we can't do that if we're just going to take certain things as just assumed truths. 
if we're going to assume that yes, this definition of crime is 100% the definition of crime, no questions asked. If we're going to assume that these particular surveys and official data points are 100% representing who commits crime, where and why and how. If we just assume that history has nothing to do with reality today. If we assume that race has nothing to do with it. If we assume that we are unbiased. And I argue that no academic is unbiased. No field can be unbiased. Sure, we have interests. We, we, have, we all have interests. We all have perspectives that we bring. But criminology has a really big role to play in how we address crime. The literature and the research that we produce, policymakers read it. They take our ideas, they take our data, and they say, okay, let's do this, let's try that, see how this works. So critical criminologists are basically trying to push the field as a whole to take that responsibility seriously and basically say we cannot be complicit in creating the same racial, gender, and class distinctions and, and just reifying those issues within the system because of our own work, but saying we need to take a step back and we need to look at how, how does race take play a role, how does sex and gender play a role, how does class play a role? How does our own research play a role? What do we do as academics to either fix the system or perpetuate what's happening and just clean it up and make it easier? Because you're going to be used, right? right. I mean, I think that's what anyone who's going into the field and into the humanities needs to understand, mm -hmm. the humanities and the social science. And, and I think it, in doing that, we actually open up a lot of the avenues by which to understand crime, right? So within critical criminology especially, we have individuals who identify as culture criminologists who look at how does culture and crime relate. So looking at things like media analysis, looking at the visuals of crime, which crime is nothing but visuals, right? Um, there's some really fascinating work being done on mugshots and particularly the mugshot website industries and how those perpetuate notions of who is a crime, what a criminal looks like. Because we're also talking about individuals who've never even been convicted potentially, but are now up on these websites, right? And so that is not work that mainstream criminologists are doing. They're not questioning, well, what does it mean to put these mugshots on the website? Critical criminologists are. Right. Well, and it was just last year from the time we're speaking now, I think when mugshots in Florida or somewhere mm -hmm. were being printed, these these were not mugshots so much as um, targets right. for police officers right. to uh, practice their, right. their shooting on, or the shooting range, rather. And they were almost all African-Americans, yep. I believe, said, you know, basically, use me, use my picture, and said that. How do those visuals impact the official rhetoric? and the laws that we pass, and the conversations we have about who is innocent, who is worthy, who is blameworthy, and who deserves to die and not. I think in popular media, as we talked about before, there seems to be a, a renewed interest in the role of crime, what crime looks like, mm -hmm. and what constitutes crime. What is it about the gray that people are really getting into now in the 21st century? And I'm thinking, you're, you know, you teach college students. Yeah, so. I mean, I think part of what drives it is with this generation especially, I think there is very much a desire to understand the world better. And I think that stems, and I say this generation because I think the way that they've grown up is so different from the rest of us, including, I think, my age and definitely older. The internet wasn't really a thing for me until I got to college. And even then, we didn't have the plethora of information coming at us 24-7 on our phones, on our laptops, on our TV. And so I think they're starting to realize, in this generation and younger particularly, the various different amounts of information that's out there and how it contradicts each other on basically a daily basis, right? You can look at one story on five different sites, they're all going to tell you something slightly different, and then the question is, well, where is the truth? So I think because of that exposure, 
there is more of a desire to sort of understand where does truth lie. I think I recently saw from Netflix um, an episode of How to Get Away with Murder where there was a suspect who was, I guess, on trial for killing someone, and the victim's mother did not want the suspect to get the death penalty, mm-hmm. or even to be in jail, but to have, a, or I guess to be in jail, but not get a death penalty, mm-hmm. and she wouldn't have the opportunity to reconcile, right. um, and so it wouldn't be a relationship, they wouldn't send, she wouldn't have sent letters back and forth right. and all of this, and it was this very, very strange, kind of even surreal approach to crime for a television mm-hmm. show, and I was talking with John Rudy, who was a former guest, peacemaker, in residence at Elizabethtown College, and he was saying how he actually met one of the people consulted for that show, another peacemaker mm-hmm. of sorts, and how, yes, this is a growing movement. They weren't, ter- I don't think they were terribly happy with how the show portrayed it, but Probably. they certainly yeah. knew that they're onto something and bringing right. this alternative to light. What is up with that? So- these, these other ways of thinking about you do X, here's the outcome, here's why, I, here's what I think what's up with that is people are starting to realize that blocking people up costs us a ton of money. And they want it to go to other things that they think deserve that money. And I think this is especially true when we look at cities like Philadelphia that had 23 schools shut down. Meanwhile, they approved $400 million new prison in the area, right? And so then the question becomes, what can we do that works just as well, if not better, but isn't costing us an arm and a leg, isn't taking money away from jobs, from education, from building the hospital that we need or you know whatever else the community actually needs? Turns out there's a lot of good stuff out there. But because we've been in this mentality of lock them up, lock them up, lock them up, yeah. we never bother to look at it. And I mean, so so what you're refer- referencing in that in that sh- in that episode is what what we call restorative justice, right? So this idea that the victim and the offender can both heal in conversation to some extent to better understand each other, but then also to heal to move past and ideally get to a position where the offender doesn't commit a crime again, so they're in a position to sort of move beyond that behavior, and the victim can move on with a more peaceful approach to life, in the sense that the pain that they're feeling, either personally or because of who they're related to, their loved one was a victim, isn't constantly holding them back, right? What is so fascinating about that, so Jonathan Braithwaite in Australia, um, he's currently at Australia National University, is one of the biggest names in the field. We tend to not hear about him in the U.S., because he... His big critique is you cannot have state-sponsored actors doing the mediation, driving their sort of justice. And that is often how we use it here in the States. What he has done, though, is fascinating because he has worked for decades in war-torn countries using restorative justice programs and studying their effectiveness, and it's found that they have actually some really good outcomes. I mean, we're talking countries torn apart by genocide, by war-related rape, right? I mean, some the worst of the worst that you can imagine and they're moving ahead. Probably better than they would have been if we just said, let's just lock everybody up. It wasn't state actors that were involved. It was state actors who said, yes, this is what we're gonna try. But the mediation was within the community. It was trained mediators who maybe had nothing to do with either side or mediators who were trained from both sides that came together to work it out. Um, with, some, again, some really good impact. And I, so I think we're aim- we're pushing more and more of that here in the US and they're definitely I mean, I, I know Lancaster City even has an organization right. that, that works on this. Um, technically, it is a part of the Pennsylvania juvenile justice system, but again, it's state actors that do the mediation, right? Um, and it's not to say that they aren't capable of doing it. The, the big critique and the question is, how neutral are they? 
And and even if they are neutral, how neutral do the participants believe they are, right? So if you're an offender and you see a state actor mediating, are you going to automatically assume that that person is siding with the victim? And then what does that do to the process, right? right? The state mediator could absolutely 100% have the best of intentions, is really neutral, wants the best outcomes for both people, but if you're going in with a particular perception, that can destroy the entire process, right? And right. so if you don't have channels built in on the front end to sort of get everyone on the same page that, okay, yeah, it's a state mediator, but we're all good, things fall apart. And and so that, I think, go back to your original question, I mean, I think, I think that's why people are paying attention to these other ideas is... Um, there is stuff that's been happening both in the U.S., but especially outside of the U.S., that is working really well, that doesn't cost a whole lot, and people seem to find rewarding, even. It seems like it's part of perhaps a larger wave of postmodern suspicion about central mm-hmm. authority, nation-states, right. right? We don't have to buy the nation-state narrative hook, line, and seeker. Right. Um, we can begin to and continue to raise questions about it. And it seems like even the larger official elite intellectual actors are raising these same questions, right. perhaps as you know, people from the fringes are be- taking hold right. in larger public discourse yeah. and have a, yeah. a megaphone to do so. But these practices that communities who've been on the fringes at the edges and haven't benefited from having a central apparatus like mm-hmm. a prison system, they've had to make do with this, right? I mean... Mm-hmm. You have to do this on a family level. You can't just kick family members out. Right. And and this this shift in perspective, or, or perhaps this um, sort of prismatic perspective on what crime is, how do we come up with the legislation that prohibits certain activities, um, and why do we prohibit certain activities? Mm-hmm. Um, this this requires a matter. This requires some time. It requires efforts at taking a different vantage point. And I wonder if you could speak a bit about how you've done that with your visual methods that you employ. Mm-hmm. I know you had a wonderful exhibit uh, called. Prisoner slave castles mm-hmm. that got out this. I had my class go through it. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so this was a project that sort of started accidentally. Um, I dabble slash hobby. So I was I was going through photos. I was initially going to do an exhibit on my trip to Ghana because um, it was just a fascinating trip. And I was going through my photos of that, looking at the photos of the slave castle that I visited there, which happened to be about a week or two after I visited Eastern State Penitentiary. And again, my random love of architecture, my eye sort of noticed, hang on a second, there's something about this slave castle that's reminding me a lot of what I saw at Eastern State Penn. And so I started going through the different photo groups that I had and realizing that there's a lot of similarities. So what I ended up coming up with was an exhibit where I did not tell people where each photo was shot. Um, I had them numbered. And that was the only information I had up front. And the question that I asked anyone who went was, what do you think it is? Is it a prison or is it a slave castle? With the goal of hopefully getting people to realize that the way that we lock people up hasn't changed all that much. Uh, now, admittedly, Eastern State Penn, you know, it, it's an old facility. It's no longer in, um, in operation. It is a museum. But it was the very first official penitentiary in the world. It was the penitentiary that just about everyone internationally modeled their institutions after. And if you look at Eastern State Penn versus some of the more modern institutions, there's a lot of overlap in terms of the single cells, the bars, the security measures. Instead of um, brick and wood, it's now steel and various types of metal, right? So the, the basic ideas are still the same. Um, yeah, so that was the whole point of, of that, was to sort of get people to think about how do we lock people up? 
And what does the architectures of imprisonment suggest about what we think about the people who are in those facilities, whether as employees or people who are forced to be there, right? And and I, I like the use of the photographs because I don't think you can get that in words. I think that's something that until you actually look at the side-by-side -side comparison, you're just not going to get it. And I mean, it was interesting because I, I did some interviews based off of those and everyone did relatively okay, but there was, there is a, on average, people missed four out of the 18 photos. It, I think it tells us that when we think about people who commit crime, we think about them, a correction, who get caught for committing crime. We think about them very differently from people who don't get caught. And I'm being very specific about caught versus not caught because reality, we all commit crime. And so really when we're talking about responding to crime, we're talking about responding to the ones who get caught. And so I think if if we're looking at the comparison of the architectures of where we put people, and I, and I focus on the architecture of imprisonment, because it's not just about people who commit crime, right? It's about anyone who's been locked up for any reason, um, including detention facilities, deportation facilities, refugee facilities, Holocaust internment camps, or anything where people have been specifically held against their will. It paints a very clear picture about who we think it is that's behind those bars. And so if you're talking about structure, right, so a slave castle today, pretty much general consensus that is the worst thing on the planet. Slavery was horrible. We should never lock people up like that. We should never think lesser of people like that. We should never believe that just because of your skin color, you're not human. Okay, so if that's what we think about a slave castle, and then you're looking at a prison, and the architecture is the same. Does that mean that we think about people behind bars the same way? Do we see them as less than, as not human, as not worthy? In our case, because of their skin color, because of the racialized nature of our criminal justice system, or even the class nature? And I would say the answer is yes. We haven't changed how we think about people who are considered the other. In the slave castle era, the other were slaves. Today, the other is the quote-unquote criminal, the person who got caught or the person who was convicted, because not everyone who's convicted is guilty. Again, not something that mainstream criminologists are asking. Dr. Shaw, you've given us a lot to think about. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. It was fun. That was our guest, Dr. Rita Shaw. She has a forthcoming book tentatively titled The Rehabilitative Ideal and Its Impact on Parole, published by Routledge. You can also follow her research and teaching at her website, ritashawphd.com. I'm your host, Richard Newton. On behalf of both of us and my production assistant, Maya Ponsuan, thanks for being here. Until next time. Broadcast Seeding is an outgrowth of the magazine SowingTheSeed.org. If you dig what you've heard, spread the word. Like us on Facebook at SowingTheSeed, and we're on Twitter and Instagram at SeedPods. Thanks for listening.